listening to The New American Left with Kieran Murphy. This past week, the whole Kanye kerfuffle bubbled up. But it really just shone a light on something that's been going on for quite some time and really gained steam in the past couple of years. And it's this revisionist history thing. I don't know, it, it hasn't really been codified into a single movement because it's so widespread. It, it goes all the way from this conservative right-wing alternative history stuff, which we're going to focus on today, but it has other places too. I mean, you can look at the Flat Earth Society, the people who thought the moon landing was faked, just a general sort of sense of conspiracy in every walk of everything, anti-GMO, anti-vaxxers, etc. So it, it's all over the place, but particularly in the Kanye incident, that was focused on this new thing that hits close to home for me, being a big fan of history and a student of history. It just bothers me that people are, are sort of taking a lazy approach to history and not doing the full research and just offering sort of shallow takes on history that bend to their new form of a narrative. Yeah, I just hate it. <laughs> and, you know, it's not about free thought, in my opinion. Kanye is free to think whatever he likes. It's just you're not free to not be challenged and you're not free from being asked for evidence. And in the pursuit of history, they often will tell you that it's about the narrative I've been told and what have you. But that's not true because when you study history at a higher level, they don't teach you a narrative. They teach you the ability to go find a narrative and to determine bias because all things written about history are biased. Everything, everything you'll ever read is biased. The idea though is trying to figure out what that bias is and how it actually affects the historical facts. So a good way to do that is to determine who the author is, determine when they were living, determine the political conditions of that time and how it might affect the way they may write. I mean, these are all things that you just have to end up doing over a long period of time and you read many angles on the same subject and you talk to other people who have different opinions about the same subject. And through that exhaustive process, you'll get to what you can consider to be the closest thing to the truth that you can get. And that's really the study of history, but that's not what these folks are doing. In this month's episode, I want to focus specifically on one of the things that Kanye was alluding to. And it's such a classic trope now in the alt-right Twitter history sphere that it needs to be addressed if it's making it this far into the mainstream. And that is the sort of classic cry of the Democrats were the party of the Confederacy and therefore the Republicans freed the slaves and they're really the party of civil rights. And I can't believe they don't tell you this in school. Well, they do tell you that in school. It's just they also tell you the things that happen after that and the context of the situation. And that's what I want this to focus on. 
it's a question that I've long asked modern conservatives when they go down this path, where I just say to them, okay then, explain to me how the party of Lincoln, who fought the Confederacy, has now come to be the party that champions and rallies around the Confederate flag. They don't usually ever have an answer to that. <laughs> so no one's ever tried to actually answer it back. They usually just move their goalposts like they tend to do. But that in and of itself, that one question can help you see the change that I'm talking about. And keep in mind, this is not to assign credit and or blame to a party because it's not that easy. But what that question does is it shows you that things evolve. And in this month's episode, let things drift until the riots come. We look at the evolution. Looky here, America, at what you've done done. Let things drift until the riots come. Now your policemen let your mobs run free. I reckon you don't care nothing about me. You tell me that Hitler is a mighty bad man. I guess he took lessons from the Ku Klux Klan. You tell me Mussolini's got an evil heart. Well, it must have been in Beaumont that he had his start. Cause everything that Hitler and Mussolini do, Negroes get the same treatment from you. You Jim Crowed me. Before Hitler rose to power, and you're still Jim Crowing me right now, this very hour. Yet you say we're fighting for democracy, then why don't democracy include me? I ask you this question, cause I want to know, how long I gotta fight both Hitler and Jim Crow? Langston Hughes, Beaumont to Detroit, 1943. Racial tensions were flaring in 1943, and as riots exploded across the country, Jim Crow became a major political issue within the Democratic Party. As Matthew Delmont, director and professor of the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State lays out in his excellent article, African Americans Fighting Fascism and Racism from World War II to Charlottesville, change was in the air. Vice President under FDR, Henry Wallace, said in July 1943, We cannot fight to crush Nazi brutality abroad and condone race riots at home. Those who fan the fires of racial clashes for the purpose of making political capital here at home are taking the first step toward Nazism. And what Wallace is saying here is that the New Deal Democrats, so the Democrats who really coalesced under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, they're lashing out in a far more progressive direction because anybody who knows American history will tell you that the issue of slavery, the issue of race relations have been a major part of the thread of the history of this country from minute one. It was argued about at the Constitutional Convention. Thomas Jefferson famously said of it himself, a slave owner, that slavery was like holding a wolf by the ears. You know it's wrong and it's dangerous, but you dare not let it go. So this has been wrestled with in the American consciousness from the beginning of the country. So it was no different in 1943. 
The problem was most politicians would kowtow to the racist majority effectively. They didn't want to talk about slavery. They didn't really want to get into Jim Crow because this opened up old wounds of the Civil War. It made people confront the fact that they were participating in the system whether they thought they were or not. So at this point, Wallace is indicating that there's a wing in the Democratic Party that's ready to step out of the norm here and make some pretty strong accusations and pretty strong proposals. That hadn't been done up until this time. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, you could go into a whole history class just on those alone. Uh, I just want to tap on a few of them here, but particularly World War II. World War II had given Americans exposure to the absurdity of segregation. One of the more famous examples being the 332nd Fighter Group and the 477th Bombardment Group, commonly referred to as the Tuskegee Airmen. They've had a few movies made about them. People are a little bit more familiar with them, but there were African-Americans serving all throughout the armed forces, doing the same type of mind-changing that more famous examples also achieved. This is on a very small scale, keep in mind. It's not like it affected policy directly, but it certainly was an indication that things might be changing. And the experiences of those African-Americans were causing a lot more public questioning of the system that we'd all been living under. It gave birth to something called the Double V Campaign. And the Double V Campaign stood for victory in two theaters, in World War II over fascism and at home over racism. And this was started by the Pittsburgh Courier after a letter from James G. Thompson, an African-American veteran who stated, being an American of dark complexion and some 26 years these questions flashed through my mind. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Will things be better for the next generation in the peace to follow? And is the kind of America I know worth defending? The conflict between fighting fascism abroad and white supremacy at home was becoming a question that needed answering. After the war, progress was slow, but the national pastime was showing that things had begun to change here. I always think of Field of Dreams and James Earl Jones when speaking about baseball, because baseball is in a lull right now. I mean, people, it's kind of chic to hate it. <laughs> so uh, I get it. But I love James Earl Jones's speech there where he references baseball has marked the time. And I love that notion because baseball is this sort of thing that just stands by throughout the entire history of the country. And uh, if you ever really need a binge watch or something, you should try to find Ken Burns baseball because he does a really good job of connecting that. But regardless of what you feel of the game, the game has been here and been witness to the history of the country. And at this point in history, you know, we just left Vice President Wallace and his comments in 1943 and the experience of the war, which ended in 1945. And then you get to this point in 1947 where Jackie Robinson arrives at the Brooklyn Dodgers, the first African-American player to play in the major leagues. Now, there had been a thriving African-American baseball league called the Negro Leagues 
And they had been going for years, for decades, and had been producing stars of their very own and some of the greatest talent the game had ever seen. But this was the first time that we saw an integrated Major League Baseball. And as anybody who knows the Jackie Robinson story knows, he, he suffered quite a bit. And he, he was very stoic in his approach, but he was, he was angry. He was upset. But he was leading a charge here. And it's an indicator. It's just one of those things that we were incrementally moving along and leading to a sea change. You know, these are the seeds of the 60s that we will see later. And that's 1947 when Jackie Robinson stepped onto Ebbets Field. And in 1948, the country would be electing a new president. And at the Democratic Convention of 1948, something fairly remarkable happened. The mayor of Minneapolis, Hubert Humphrey, gave what would go down in history as a very important speech. There are those who say to you, we are rushing the issue of civil rights. I say, we are 172 years late. There are those who say, this issue of civil rights is an infringement on states' rights. The time has arrived for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. This marked a decided turn for the Democratic Party who had always quietly tried to stay out of Jim Crow because, as Kanye and friends correctly point out, I know that'll be edited heavily now and used against me. But they correctly point out that the Democrats were the party of the Confederacy. And the Democrats were the party who instituted a lot of Jim Crow. That's true. But while it is true, like all things American history, everything is constantly in flux. Everything is evolving. So the Hubert Humphrey speech in 48 gives a clear indication that the Democratic Party is evolving. And after that speech, there was a reaction. All of the Mississippi delegation walked out, and half of the Alabama delegation. Handy Ellis gave a quick speech on his way out, which really encapsulated the feelings of all the Southern Democrats who were enraged after Humphrey's speech. Ellis said this, The South is no longer going to be the whipping boy of the Democratic Party, and you know that without the votes of the South, you cannot elect the President of the United States. Within two weeks, Truman issued executive orders that desegregated the military and federal civil service. And in July, those who left the convention officially formed the States' Rights Democratic Party, a.k.a. the Dixiecrats. And the Dixiecrats ran in 1948, and they nominated Strom Thurmond as their presidential candidate and Fielding L. Wright as their vice presidential candidate. And they won states. They took Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina. And Truman ends up squeaking by with victory because they managed to take new states, Ohio, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and Colorado, which they were unable to take in the 1944 election. So right there you start to see an evolution, a little slip that the South is voting one way and the North and West are starting to vote a different way. And this brings us back to what started this, this alternative history thing that 
Kanye has made famous, but many people have been pushing, this idea that the Democrats of the Confederacy in the 19th century, you can draw a straight line between them and the Democrats of today. And you can't do that. And one of the reasons is this example of the Dixiecrats. There are many different examples. There are many examples of how the Republicans evolved. You can't draw a straight line because of all the history and the evolution that takes place in between. And after 1948, the civil rights situation in this country heats up dramatically. There is a slew of tragedies and court decisions and protests and movements and things that all deserve their own individual podcast, if not own full-length encyclopedias. Everything begins to come to a head as we approach the early 60s. After JFK is assassinated, Lyndon Johnson makes it his mission to pass the Civil Rights Act. And the Civil Rights Act is the most comprehensive civil rights legislation that the country had seen since the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. A great recommendation from me to you is to go over on your Twitter and follow Kevin Cruz. That's Cruz, K-R-U-S-E, and he's at Kevin Cruz. A great historian and author, but he always lays out in great Twitter threads a lot of excellent evidence and good primary source material to back up what he's trying to tell us. And I would encourage you to go over there and read everything he puts out because whether or not you agree fundamentally with it, it may help you just understand some of the things that actually transpired in the past rather listening to somebody's narrative. And the alternative narrative that we've been hearing these days tries to sell it as the Republicans, again, have always been the party of civil rights, so we can draw that straight line from the 19th century straight through to 1960, and the Republicans were the ones who always did the civil rights work. I don't want to minimize what Republicans did do, because they did do things, but to completely obfuscate away the Democrat participation in that in the 60s is to completely miss the point of evolving history. So as Cruz lays out just the raw numbers of the actual vote on the principal pieces of legislation of the 60s, it's hard to ignore the Democratic presence. <laughs> I mean, as he cites, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed by a Democratic-led House with 152 Democratic votes for and 138 Republican votes for, and Democratic-led Senate with 46 Democratic votes for and 27 Republican votes for. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed by a Democratic-led House with 221 Democratic votes for and 112 Republican votes for, and the Democratic-led Senate with 49 Democratic votes for and 30 Republican votes for. LBJ signed it. In the Fair Housing Act of 1968, it was passed by a Democratic-led House with 166 Democratic votes for and 161 Republican votes for, and Democratic-led Senate with 42 Democratic votes for and 29 Republican votes for, and again signed into law by Lyndon Johnson. So I think I may have just stumbled on why the alternative history crowd doesn't like to do that kind of research. It's kind of boring. 
it's not fun to just sit there and analyze vote totals and numbers and connect the dots a bit. But it's clear that that was a bipartisan, Democratic-led effort. And the people who voted no had something in common. They were all from the South. And something that the alternative history crowd really likes to ignore is that people forget that we're very polarized today. The Democrats encompass the middle and left-leaning sort of-ness. <laughs> I mean, they're supposed to encompass the left, but, you know, again, all my leftist friends will get in a big fight about it. But just in, in general, the Democrats are supposed to be on the left side of things and the Republicans are on the right side of things. Well, back at this time, and even further back to the Civil War, that's not really the case. Uh, you have liberal Republicans, you have conservative Democrats all the time, always voting differently. It was really a lot more regional than it was party affiliated. So when we look back in time from our standpoint here, where the parties are so diametrically opposed to each other and sort of purged to a degree of any of the, the ones who would cross over and sort of be both, it's hard to make that connection. And as Cruz masterfully lays out on his Twitter thread, Because the parties were ideologically diverse, with liberals and conservatives in both the GOP and Dems, there were votes both for and against all these civil rights bills in both parties. But if you look at things in regional terms, the important difference is clear. The original House version, Southern Democrats, 7-4, 87 against. Southern Republicans, 0 for, 10 against. Northern Democrats, 145 for, and 9 against. Northern Republicans, 138 for, 24 against. And in the Senate version, Southern Democrats, 1 for, 20 against. And in Southern Republicans, 0 for, and 1 against. In Northern Democrats, 45-4, one against. And in Northern Republicans, 27-4, and five against. So what's important and what Cruz is putting on display with these numbers is that this is very regional and far less connected to the party affiliation than anything else. It's important to see that the society itself is changing. And those evolutions are hard to pin down and certainly not able to be pinned down in just something as simple as party affiliation. And that's really the crux of the whole issue here and why we went in today and delved into these minute details and vote totals and, and things that I know are a little bit wonky, <laughs> to be honest. But because of this narrative that Kanye's made famous, but people have been pushing, it can't just be people like myself who are wonky anymore. You gotta be wonky too now, everybody. Because if we don't understand the details, they're gonna be rewritten for us. And that's really what's happening. People are trying to rewrite history for us and tell us a story that they've concocted in their own head, concocted by people with an agenda to push. It's not that the Democrats were the only party of civil rights or that the Republicans were the only party that have civil rights. It's that they both were, and at different times in history, 
different people occupied those spaces. But one thing remains true. There was one group of people who thought there should be civil rights. And there was one group of people who thought there shouldn't be. And whatever party affiliation they decide to have at whatever time in history, one of them's still wrong. And that's really the only truth that matters. Because I could go into detail about how slowly but surely Republicans moved into the empty spaces of the old Democratic seats and that they brought their racial tension and their conservative Christianity with them. And then by the 90s, you have Newt Gingrich and the conservative revolution of the contract for America. We could go into all that, but it doesn't matter because there's always been one side opposing equal rights and one side for equal rights. They've been different percentages of the population over time, but they've always been there. And when we let the details get rewritten for us and ignored, and we don't wade through the wonky numbers and the theoretical concepts and all this stuff, when we don't do the research, we subject ourselves to not noticing that the party of Lincoln now wraps itself in the Confederate flag. And if you know your history, that's an example of historical cognitive dissonance that should ring alarm bells. For when right-wing conservatives are trying to tell you a history of their unwavering support for civil rights and that they freed the slaves, you might want to ask them that question and see what they have to say because I'm very curious as to what their answer would be. And you will have a little bit more information about the whole story. We can't let things drift, as Langston you said. We need to be able to stand firm. We need to acknowledge our history. We need to accept it. We need to recount it responsibly. If we ever want to have hope, hope, hope for the future. Hope, 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 Looky here, America, at what you done done. Let things drift until the riots come. Don't get captured. You've been listening to The New American Left with Kieran Murphy. You can download the podcast at thenewamericanleft.com, and you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at the new A M E R Left 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 Left.